Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Lou Weiss from Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we have our usual humorist and uh, expert in economics, and his name is uh, Chris Keel, who is with uh, the Credit Managers Index Report uh, that we have on our show every month. And uh, Chris, we had a a few comments uh, prior to my showing up late in the studio. Uh, so why don't we get to it? Not a bad idea. <clears throat> what we were talking about right before we started was kind of what's happening with manufacturing. Obviously, that's of interest to this audience, given the name of the show. And most of the data that we've been getting lately has been fairly positive. You know, if you look at things like the purchasing managers index which you also talk about on a regular basis the numbers went up they're definitely into the 60s now 61.1 i think was the latest number up from 60.9 i think the month before and for people that are familiar with either the pmi or the cmi because they're both modeled on the same diffusion index anything over 50 is considered expansion so those numbers are solid. The manufacturing part of the credit managers index was also positive, not as positive as the PMI since it was at about 56.5, a little bit down from what it was the month before. But a lot of the other manufacturing surveys that have been coming out in the last week have been pointing in a pretty positive direction. The Fed, 12 Fed districts, all each have their own manufacturing report and the ones that have come out so far include the philly fed the texas fed the empire report that comes out of new york they're all trending very positively too the good news in all that is that there was sort of an expectation that manufacturing would start to slip a little as people got back to service spending and we've definitely seen a pickup in the service sector as far as consumers are concerned and the fear was that as people started going back to spending on restaurants and events and travel and all that stuff that they would spend less on things and so far the consumer is doing both and they're saying i'm going to travel and buy things you know i still have money and i don't care that there's inflation at least right now and they're continuing to do it. We also were talking a little before the show about some of the good news on the transportation side, and it's qualified good news. Um, when you're looking at the rate of freight transportation, it exploded last year, and the prices for everything and logistics went sky high. Maritime rates were up as high as 180% at one point, Trucking rates have been high. Rail rates have been high. The manufacturers I talked to are saying, yeah, logistics costs are killing us. The good news is they have probably peaked. Um, the freight rates have started to come down at the maritime level, still not back to where they were even at the beginning of 2021, but they're off by about 70% which is good except that they went up 180 percent so you're still have a long ways to go so the good news is they're starting to trend in the right direction really isn't affecting the freight that's coming in now 
it's basically the freight that's going to be delivered probably the first part of the year. Those container rates are coming down. But you haven't yet seen a decline in trucking costs or rail costs or air cargo costs. Theoretically, that starts to happen beginning of next year now that the peak season is over. Uh, but that, again, kind of remains to be seen. So by and large, the the data going into 2022 is still upbeat. We're still thinking that we're going to be hitting growth rates next year somewhere in the 4.5% rate, uh, maybe higher than that. The unemployment rate is still going to be around 4%, maybe 3.8. That's kind of what the Fed is projecting. So basically, halfway good news. When you look at the CMI, that's where a little bit of the warnings are showing up. Most of the favorable factors, people that we've talked to for years understand that the favorables are things like sales and applications for credit and dollar collections and amount of credit extended. Those are all still in the 60s and very strong. The weaknesses are showing up in the unfavorables where you're getting a little bit more concern around slow pays, around disputes, around accounts out for collection. The really serious stuff like bankruptcies, still in positive territory, but some of the early warning ones are dropping into the upper 40s, not like set your hair on fire emergency, but it's like, this is not going in the right direction. We would like these to go back up into the 50s. Um, most of that, we have gotten kind of anecdotal reports from the credit managers. A lot of it is still supply chain driven, um, that companies are prepared to start doing more if they can ever get the parts in. Um, automotive is still behind with trying to get chips, and they're not the only ones. I just talked to a bunch of ag dealers the other day, and they were like, you know, we've sold all kinds of machines. It would be nice if we could deliver any of them. Um, but right now they're sitting out there going, yep, I can sell you a combine, but you're going to have to push the sucker because I can't start it. Um, <laughs> so, and farmers don't find that amusing. Um, they're, you know, kind of like high, you know, it's kind of hard to explain to the crop that it needs to wait before I can harvest it. Crop just says, nope. I'm going to grow and then it's going to get cold and I'm going to die. Your problem. Well, Chris, uh, I mean, you, you painted a, a very realistic view as uh, not as optimistic as I would hope. But the, the point being that we do have uh, some significant ongoing issues, uh, as you pointed out with regards to uh, maritime costs. Uh, All Metals and Forge Group, which I uh, am part of, um, a container used to cost 18 months ago about 42 to $4,400 a container. It then jumped over these last 22 months to $22,000 a container. It's now down to about $18,000 a container, and we're going, hoo-ha, hoo-ha, things are getting better. You know, yeah, exactly. they're not getting better. It's just getting less worse than it was. 
Well, less worse is better. I mean, it, it's kind of like, okay. you know, it, it's one of those things where we all have to come to grips with the fact that when things are going up, what you fervently hope for is for them to stop going up and start going the other way. And then the question becomes, okay, how fast are these going to go down and how far will they go down? And if you look at some of the indices that are maybe the most early indicators, the Baltic Dry Index is one of those weird indices that's been around for over 100 years. And it was basically designed to track commodity movement in the maritime sector. And it hit a really dramatic peak in 2020, 2021. And that's been obvious with all the prices that we've seen with shipping. It is now coming back down and it's coming back down pretty fast. Is it still high? Absolutely. Um, is it gonna take probably half a year before these prices come back to a reasonable level? Probably. Will they go back to that 4,000, 5,000 container level? Probably not. I mean, you're probably gonna have that same issue with sticky prices that you always do. It'll come back down and maybe settle at 5,000. And and like you said, people will be like, wow, this is great. It's not 18,000 anymore. It's like, yeah, well, it used to be a lot less than that. But then again, once upon a time, you could buy a house for $35,000. Those days are over um, and used to be able to buy a car for, you know, I remember buying a Volkswagen and this will date me for 500 bucks. Um, it was used, but I don't think you can buy a broken moped for $500 now. Chris, I bought a 1978 Coupe de Ville Cadillac for $5,000 ah. in 1978. <laughs> This is go. now 19, uh, we're, we're, what are we, 20, uh, 80, 2021. So that's about uh, 30 year, 50 years ago. And now to buy a Cadillac, which they don't make the Coupe de Ville, which is ridiculous that they don't. Uh, right, right. You, you can't buy those cars today anymore. No, I mean, uh, the average price of a car now is $44,000. I mean, the average price. If you can get a delivery. Well, exactly. I mean, that, that's the Flintstones version that you have to pedal it yourself because um, it doesn't start. So if you want computer chips, well, that's a whole different thing. Um, so. uh, you can buy, start buying car parts a piece at a time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's assemble the car yourself. That's right. That's right. So uh, where are we going from here? Well, I think we're we're heading towards what may pass as normal <laughs> in the years to come. Going back to 2020 and 2021 for the next two decades is going to be almost pointless. I mean, if you go back to 2020, hopefully that's the only recession of this kind we'll ever have to deal with. I mean, the miscalculations for 2020 are just legendary at this point. 2021 is something that is just as bizarre because we grew so fast at the beginning of the year because of all the pent-up demand. We overwhelmed the supply chain, et cetera. We're all aware of that. So going into 2022, 
it's going to feel kind of odd because we're back to what we normally do. It's going to look a lot more like 2019. We're going to have growth that is a little faster than we normally do, but it's not going to be that kind of 6.5% that we hit in quarter two of this year. It's going to be around four. For some companies, it's going to be, well, it's great. We're finally back to a normal pattern that we can keep up with. Others kind of got used to that fast growth and may end up having to, to rethink. I mean, I've been talking for quite some time about the fact that manufacturers in particular are in kind of a rock and a hard place situation because there's only been two reactions to all of this growth. You can either try to keep up with it and buy the machinery, hire the people, expand, do everything you can to meet that demand. But you run the risk of having too much inventory later and not having enough demand to support that decision. The other alternative is to say, I don't believe this demand is going to last and I don't want to make all this investment. So I'm going to sit it out. And then you watch your competitors picking up your market share because they decided to make that call. So from a manufacturer's perspective, it's like, okay, how do I want to die? Drowning or being hung? Um, you know, <laughs> it's like, it, it's kind of either way, I'm going to be suffering to a degree. It's kind of like an Irish friend of mine once pointed out, he says, you know, if you were born to hang, you'll never drown. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so you you are traditionally a true humorist. Not all your jokes are funny, but most of them you can get a smile. Uh, problem that I see uh, going forward is that is that I don't see things really totally progressing in a positive manner. For example. Um, going into 2022 what are we what are we going to be doing going forward are, are we going to be uh, um, exemplifying the fact that there's growth coming that the demand will uh, continue uh, where is this going where where are we where's the outlook going well, a lot of it is probably going to come down to trying to figure out demographics, because for the last several years, we've been in the early stages of a transition that I think is hard to underestimate, because boomers have been driving the economy since they were born. And so if you look at the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, today, the boomer drives the train. But we're finally getting to the point where we're not the most important part of the economy. And we're sort of giving way to the next significant generation, which is not Gen X, it's the millennials. And the millennials are now coming into their peak earning years and all of their preferences are going to start driving economic decisions. And right now we're not really sure what those are going to look like. We know that they're more interested in things like electric cars and smaller cars, and they're concerned more about climate change, and they're concerned about where they live, and they were slow to start families. And 
we're still trying to get our hands around what the millennial looks like, and that's what's going to end up driving growth. We already know that technology matters a lot more to that cohort than it does to boomers. We already know that you're going to see the manufacturing sector shifting closer and closer to technology, automation, robotics, looking for different kinds of workers, trying to figure out how to lure the millennial into the manufacturing sector. And a lot of our habits have started to change, that we're, we shop online now, we interact with our apps more. And it's difficult, I mean, honestly, not speaking for you, but we're of the same era. And that stuff doesn't have the appeal to me that it does to my younger cohorts. And they get a new device and they're just happy as clams to mess with this thing for days. And I'm like, I just want it to be a phone. Can I just have it be a phone? Can I call somebody on my phone? I don't, I don't want to launch NORAD with it. I just want to call my wife. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> So it's, it's, we, we're well, going to adjust to that. Well, uh, avoiding your comment about my age over your age, <laughs> which I will uh, dispute with you off camera. Yes, yes. Uh, and and I, I'm feeling older than you, uh, and you're probably feeling younger than me, as you pointed out. The point is that where are we, where are we going? I mean, I, you know, in, in my age group, um, the situation is, how are we going to continue to grow and, and survive the environment that we are in and have been in? Because at my point in life, I'm not, I'm not at a point where I give two coots anymore because there's nothing I could do about it. Right, right. And so I, I, got, I got two daughters, I got two granddaughters or uh, you know, everybody's in college and graduating and so on and so forth. The point is, I can't do anything about it. I see the problems of uh, the, the era that we're in, as you pointed out about our joint. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. But the point is that, is this fixable? Is the national debt ever going to be paid? Uh, are we, and, and my, by the way, my opinion, and I think my listeners have heard it in the past, the debt will never, ever be paid. No, it never will. And it and was never you really, go. you know, it's All never right. intended to be. I mean, you know, the, the goal usually, it's just kind of like with a, a business or an individual. Most people are recognize that they're going to spend the better part of their life indebted for a variety of reasons. They're going to buy a house. They're going to buy cars. They're going to buy things they don't have the money for. The trick is, and it always has been the issue, is managing the debt. Number one, what did you get for the money that you borrowed? And that's one of the big problems with government debt. Did we invest in things that grow the economy? And the answer is no. It's, it's kind of like borrowing an incredible amount of money to go gamble in Vegas. It doesn't really get you anything. If you borrowed to buy a house, well, you have a house. I mean, you've got an asset. If the government was spending it on infrastructure and job training and you know technology, it would be different than what they're doing now. 
The other problem is debt service. And what limits you and I and our companies is that if we're paying out an incredible sum of money to handle debt, well, we can't pay for anything else. And that's what the government's facing now. They're spending $400 billion a year on debt service. So the only thing we can hope for is maybe a reduction in that amount of debt service, but there is no sign that a politician anywhere in the United States thinks that's important. I think there's a city councilman in Boise that <laughs> thought that was a good idea, but I think he may be the only one. Um, everybody else is like, what the heck? You know, it's like, it's not my money. Um, uh, somebody else can pay this. Well, we, so, just keep, we just keep printing it. Yeah, we do. I mean, People have talked about, you know, the Chinese own our country because they've bought our debt. Maybe 10 years ago, there was some validity to that because their percentage was fairly high. We have now bought so much of our own debt that the Chinese share is minuscule. It doesn't matter. 40% of our federal debt is owned by the federal government itself and the Fed. So the vast majority of this of this debt that we've incurred in the last several years has been the government buying from the government. <laughs> it's just like- so, it's well, gonna... I'm glad you brought up that aspect of it. So if our government owns our debt, does that mean that automatically means that they're not gonna pay off the debt to themselves? It it basically means there's not a lot of urgency to do it. And in a weird kind of way, like the money that the Fed has invested in buying treasuries, they, when they are being hit with, or when we're paying the debt service on the Fed's acquisition, the Fed money goes back to the government. So it's kind of like we're where you've got like five accounts and they're all in your checking account. Well, I'm going to use this account to pay for this account. I'm going to use my MasterCard to pay my visa. And then I'll use my Discover card to pay the visa bill because the MasterCard is maxed out, but I still got moving on my Diners Club card. You know, we're, we're seeing at the government level something that used to be in sitcoms. And and I don't know that we ever get out of that, that mess. What we do end up doing the way that I've tried to characterize the economy going forward is that it's not contracted a fatal disease, but it has a chronic illness. It's a debilitating, every year we lose 400 billion that we could spend on something useful, but we're ending up spending it on debt. Every year we waste a considerable sum of money. We don't think through decisions that we make. I mean, even going back to the 2020 stimulus, we weren't sure what we were dealing with and we just dumped a lot of money on the economy, which is what you do. But I remember as this was starting, my wife got a check for 800 bucks. Why? If you're trying to help people who lost their jobs during the stimulus, why are you paying me? I, I, what? I, I don't need this money. I have no, did I spend it? Hell yes. Um, you know, I didn't refund it to the government, but it was like, why? Why did we spend the equivalent of the Japanese GDP trying to stimulate the economy that way? I mean, it, it made very little sense. And well, like I said, lots of miscalculations. So I'm going to comment on why, the why that you presented. Yes. 
And the why is because we are collectively out of control. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's real simple. Your debt's never going to be paid. Keep printing, keep spending, up the, up the spend rate. You don't have to worry about it because we're not going to pay it back anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's and it would be problem enough if the fact was that other countries are even worse at this than we are. The Chinese have 280% debt to GDP ratio, three times right. worse than ours. Right. Japan's 260%, Greece is 180%. So compared to a lot of countries, we're not doing bad. You know, we're kind of like, you know, it's like a bunch of guys standing around saying, yeah, well, I'm maxed out on my credit cards. Well, yeah, well, I'm only maxed out on six, man. So I'm in better shape than you are. You know, and the other guy says, yeah, I'm maxed out on 12. See there, I'm twice as good as you. And well, it's like, yeah, but you're still maxed out. <laughs> but maxed out doesn't make any difference. But I do want to ask you a question because yes. it keeps on coming up, even in, even in, uh, uh, mainstream media about the Greece debt. Mm -hmm. Who cares about Greece? I mean, they make great <laughs> food, they make great wines, they make great olives, but who cares about their debt? Why is that on top of a uh, uh, the hit parade in terms of news? It was, it basically goes back to the imbalance that you have in Europe, and that's the fact that the northern states end up having to subsidize the southern states. So the Germans and the Danes and the Austrians and all the rest are like, you know, it doesn't matter if we're being fiscally responsible if the Italians and the Greeks and the Spanish and the Portuguese aren't, because they're all members of the EU. And we end up having to shoulder those burdens. And so it, it, the issue just comes down to that if they are behaving in a profligate way, it's eventually going to land in the laps of the Germans. And the Germans don't like that. And currently, there's great controversy in Germany as who's going to run the country. I mean, they've had an election, but they still don't have a government because they have not figured out how that coalition is going to work. It's going to be one that's going to include the Greens, no matter who ends up organizing it, either the center left or the center right. Neither one can function without the Greens. And the Greens are like, okay, well, then I want all this stuff done for the environment. The very same year that Europe is in crisis over natural gas prices because the wind did not blow and they only got 20% of what they expected from their wind farms. So, I mean, I mean, that's the complexity. Gas prices have gone up and people are trying to figure out why. And when I talk to people, I say, well, bottom line is your gas prices went up because the Russians are creeps and the wind didn't blow in Europe. And I'm like, well, how does that work? Well, the Russians are blackmailing the Europeans saying, if you don't build Nord Stream 2, we ship you no gas. And the Europeans are like, what? It's the Russian way. We are blackmail. You pay for pipeline, you get gas. No pipeline, no gas. Then all of a sudden, 600% increase in natural gas, forcing U.S. utilities to burn oil instead of gas. And the average person standing at their car going, damn it, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> so, 
<laughs> well, that's part of the problem with that is it's not appropriately explained to the populace mm -hmm. as to what's really going on. I mean, you did a great job just uh, listening to what's really going on. But, you know, things like gas, you know, um, the Suez Canal, as of two days ago, was shut down because yeah. not only is the Suez Canal jammed with uh, ships, but one got stuck and it's now day three. They're never <laughs> going to get those ships out of there. And if you look at, uh, there's a website that I go on to called uh, marinetraffic.com. If right. you go on there and you listen to the uh, the news, U.S. news, where they say, oh, how terrible. We have 100 ships off the coast of uh, Long Beach, uh, California. There's 100,000 ships in the entire ocean jammed oh, yeah. up. And uh, the Suez Canal, you cannot see any water. There's no yeah. water. It's all ships. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I love the maps that you can look at and it just it just freaks you out completely because you see the the maps that are tracking the ships and right. you know exactly. you're in trouble when they start going in circles for days. You know, it's well, kind of like what do you, that what do you do? or they can't go in circles because they can't yeah. move. Right, exactly. That's what, and, and that's exactly what they got right now. Go to marinetraffic.com mm -hmm. and you will see not only 100,000 ships in the ocean that are all jammed up, but take a look at the Suez Canal where there's so much traffic and product that moves through there that they are totally jammed. Totally. And, and then you start looking into all the other complexities. There's about 1.3 million seafarers in the world. 900,000 of them are from emerging market nations, have not been able to get vaccinated. And because they're not vaccinated, they can't leave their ships when they do find a port, right. which means that they get stuck on these ships for months. And the vast majority of these guys, their real job is their farmers back home. And they take these ship jobs so that they can work a few months, get home, bring in the crop, plant the crop. And now they're like, I can't, if I take this shipping job, I won't be home in time. So I'm not going to take the shipping job. I mean, it's just we suddenly because we've finally begun to understand the supply chain, we're beginning to realize that what happens thousands of miles away is going to affect whether or not you have socks that match. And and it's just like, what? Like, well, you know, it's I've worked with transportation clients for years. And the thing that was always fascinating to me is just sitting back and realizing that every single solitary thing I touch or see arrived in a truck at some well, point. I, I, might, I might dispute some of the things that you just recently said. And that was um, part of the problem is that most Americans anyway, even though it's been exposed to them pretty pretty much recently over the last couple of months about the term supply chain. Right. Most Americans, especially if you're in Iowa and uh, Nebraska and South Dakota and so on, not that they're stupid, it's just that they're not getting the right information about what supply chain means. They go into their uh, 
local bodega and they find there's nothing there on the shelves. Well, why is that? How come how, you didn't get your shipment? You know, what's the story? No, there's no goods coming into the country. They're all hung up in LA, Long Beach, uh, 100,000 ships stuck in the ocean, Suez Canal. We're, they're talking now about the oil prices dropping 25 cents a gallon at the pump. Well, that's fine, but wait until the effect of the jam up at the Suez Canal takes hold at the right. pump. It's going to go up maybe a dollar a gallon. And I would I would only dispute your characterization being a good Kansas boy. Um, those those Nebraskans and Dakotans and Iowans know all about supply chain, particularly because they have been interacting with it from an agricultural standpoint for years. I mean, one of the things that always shocks people about the state of Kansas, where I'm from, is that we're one of the major export states in the U.S., and people are like, oh, how can that be? And I said, do you honestly think we eat all the food we produce? We try. We're the 10th fattest state in the country, but we eventually have to sell it. And all of a sudden, people are really aware of port closures. And right now, they're saying, well, that's great. You're starting to see containers coming in. You're not seeing a lot of outbound freight. And we have an awful lot of agricultural produce that is supposed to be on a ship heading for China and can't get there. And so the world is, if, if there's any group that doesn't quite get supply chain, it's probably the, the person that's been plugged into their video game and, and doesn't really quite understand even where that came from. But that's, that's me being ageist. Um, <laughs> so... Well, part of the problem that we uh, foresee coming down the path is the fact that uh, we are not going to be solving these issues anytime soon. And um, th this is really, a, I, I believe personally, a, a horrible time on many counts. One, we're not going, you know, we're not getting. We're not getting. Uh, merchandise. We're not filling the shelves, irrespective of those who say we are. We're not. Um, uh, my wife and I went up uh, recently to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and we stopped off in a grocery store to pick up uh, some snacks and such and potato chips and so on. And we walked in and the shelves were, this was a supermarket, a major mm -hmm. superstore. I would say, if I had a guess, I would say that sixty percent of the shelves were empty. And it's going to be something that's highly regional because you're seeing huge shortages in some parts of the country and not much shortage at all in others. And right. it's going to take a while before that settles out. I'm not that pessimistic about the future. I think we've always, had to struggle through some kind of a set of problems or another. What worries me the most is that because we have run a debt up as high as we have, we don't really have a lot of options. I mean, if we ended up with another recession, even something half as mild as 2020, there isn't any ammunition left. And I don't anticipate a recession coming anytime soon, but should there be one, there really isn't a lot the government could do, even if it wanted to. 
what worries me, I think probably more than anything, and, and we don't have time to go into this, is there's very little political will to do much of anything. The fact that it took two years to get a simple infrastructure bill passed, that used to be the no-brainer. I mean, that was the one thing that the politicians would agree on. Who doesn't like roads and bridges? Come on. And all of a sudden, it becomes a red-blue issue, and it's like, no, it's not. Potholes are not political. You don't want them. They tear up your car, whether you're liberal or a conservative. If you're driving a Prius, it breaks your axle. If you're driving a pickup truck, it breaks your axle. Fix the damn pothole. Well, the problem with all of that is that everything, everything has become so politicized that tomorrow's weather has become politicized. No, I agree. I agree. And uh, we're we're not fixing it with the crowd that we got in D.C. now. No, Whether and left, you and I have agreed I, on that many times. Yep. I'm sorry? You and I have agreed on that many times. Oh, and yeah. and I'm almost to the point of, of saying we ought to just open the phone book, if we still had phone books, <laughs> toss a dart and say, whoever this hits is the new senator. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, I, 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 I kid around about the idea, you know, well, maybe it's time to leave this country and go to... And go to one that's not quite as whatever we got now. Uh, so good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Uh, Chris, so to sum up, what's the forecast with the credit managers' report? I think we're in pretty good shape. I mean, we're we're going to see, like I said, kind of a return to normal behavior. And it's going to feel slow to some people. It's going to feel pretty quick to others. And But the credit managers, as mentioned before, tend to think into the future. And they're still pretty upbeat, particularly when it comes to things like sales and applications for credit. They're definitely picking up those companies that have not fared very well in the last year. So that kind of drags down those unfavorables. But when it comes to the things that drive them forward, those numbers are still very strong and they have not been this strong in years. I mean, we've been in the seventies for sales all year and that will continue. So I'm, I'm, I'm upbeat in the sense that I think short-term our growth is going to be respectable. Uh, It's going to be growth that we can manage and that's going to be new too. So I'm pretty, pretty confident about 2022, 2023, maybe when some of those chickens come to roost, but I'm going to worry about that next year because I'm just going to enjoy 2022. Worry okay, about 23 so later. As kind of a final question to the wrap up, uh, the 2022 Q1. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't ask the question yet, so start thinking about it. What's going to happen in Q1? In view of the fact that the the Q the Q four of this year is showing this high demand, uh, there's in spite of the fact that we can't get goods in the shelf, the demand is high. What are we uh-huh. going to do 
in Q after Q1, because I think Q1 is next year is going to be still showing strong as it has been in Q3, 4 of 21. But then we have Q2 of 22. I think that's where the problem or the, the questions of the future pop up. Yeah, we're, we're probably going to see 5% growth in Q4 back, back to where we were. Q3 was kind of the anomaly because mm -hmm. we ended up getting very scared by the Delta variant. Right. And again, that could be a problem next year. But I think I agree with you that Q1 is still going to be around 5% growth. Q2 probably coming down by half a point, maybe. But throughout the year, you're just going to see this steady decline. So that by the time you get to Q4 of next year, you're probably at three and a half percent, and which is still good. I mean, our 20 year okay. average is 22.5. So we're we're going to be above average, but not by much, but enough that there's some opportunity. The silver lining when it comes to inflation is that people are in a position to raise their prices a little bit, which they haven't been able to for 10 years. The banks are going to be a little more generous because when the rates are this low, they have no margin to work with and they are very picky when it comes to lending. When the rates go up a little bit, they become a little more risk tolerant. So rates will be higher, but it'll also mean that companies can get loans where they weren't able to before, particularly manufacturers. Because when I talk to the bankers, they're like, look, if you loan to a manufacturer, it's at least a capitalized loan. You've got something of value. Where we get concerned is loaning to somebody who wants to start a coffee shop. You know, if that goes under, what are we stuck with? Another a lot of coffee machine. beans. Yeah, and it's like, no, we'd, we'd rather loan to somebody who wants to buy a laser cutter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, uh, you know, in, in view of the end of this uh, COVID cycle or near end of the COVID cycle, uh, our particular business, All Metals and Forge Group, uh, has seen a significant uh, increase in uh, orders and backlog and so on. Uh, whether that's going to continue, frankly, I believe it will, at least into Q1, uh, maybe a little slip sliding in uh, Q2, um, three and four, who knows, but that's seven yeah. months away. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's where I become more like a weatherman, because it's like, what can you say about the weather in seven months? It will be warmer. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I want to thank you for your input, your humor, your um, uh, in intellect, and so on. And I want to thank you for this uh, presentation that you uh, share with us. So I very want to good. thank you for that. Thanks and very have, much, and, and we'll and we'll do it again next year. Uh, yeah, and you have a good holiday, and uh, we look forward to talking to you then. So very thanks, good. Thanks, thank Lou. You all righty. So here we are, folks. It's uh, the beginning of December. Um, Chris Keel has uh, been a regular on our show for a number of years. Uh, his insight and forecasting capabilities of what's coming has been pretty much on the mark over the last several years. Uh, 
I have some serious uh, questions about uh, the future, but I think that we all do. So uh, I appreciate that you've all been on our uh, Jacket Media Co. Uh, website. Uh, I'd like you to come to wham.com, which is our uh, women and manufacturing and business. We also have uh, a couple of other shows. We've got a couple of series, monthly series. So why don't you join us? Keep coming back. Love to have you. If you want to be a guest on the show, by all means, let us know. Uh, uh, my particular uh, email address is laweiss at jacketmediaco.com, which is up here in the upper left corner, depending upon how you're looking at it. So you all have a good holiday season. I'm sure we're going to see you and hear you before the end of the month. We do have a couple of major shows coming up before the end of the month with the Institute of Supply Management with the next year's forecast. Uh, you might want to look into that. So come to our website and uh, we can have a conversation. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Enjoy your presence. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.